0: Good evening and welcome to What the Friday. Now this has been yet another long week, or at least it seemed that way to me. Back on Tuesday, I was thinking at least had to be Thursday by now. So imagine my surprise when I looked at my phone and realized it was only Tuesday. And as we know, Tuesday is Monday's ugly sister or ugly stepsister. So, if you listened on Monday, you know that we started the Roaring Twenties series on mystery, murder, and magic. And we kicked that off talking about the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. Now, there was a lot of craziness that went on with that. And it was known as Hollywood's first big scandal or first scandal. Well, tonight's episode takes place in the next decade. And it's about one of America's most famous kidnappings that has often been called the crime of the century, and it's the kidnapping of Charles A. Lindbergh, Jr., the son of the famous aviators at that time. Welcome to What the Friday, an after-dark series presented by Mystery, Murder, and Magic. Listener discretion is advised. Like Wednesday's episode about the disappearance and death of Mary Jane Barker, tonight's episode takes place in New Jersey. But this happened about 25 years before Mary Jane's case. Charles A. Lindbergh Sr. was a well-known aviator who was born in 1902. At the age of 25, he went from being a basically unknown U.S. airmail pilot to world-famous aviator for making the first non stop solo flight from New York City to Paris, France. The flight took 33 and a half hours in a plane that was specially built for the flight. The airplane was known as the Spirit of St. Louis. He grew up in the Little Falls, Minnesota area and then in Washington, D.C. His dad was a prominent congressman from Minnesota. Lindbergh started his aviation career in 1924 in the U.S. Army Air Corps Reserves. And the following year, he was hired as a U.S. air mail pilot in the St. Louis area. For his successful transatlantic flight, he received the Medal of Honor from President Calvin Coolidge and the Distinguished Flying Cross. Now, both of those are really big deal um, medals, you know, to receive. Now, this successful transatlantic flight sparked interest in commercial aviation and airmail, and Lindbergh decided that he would dedicate a lot of his time to help develop those. So, from those and many other awards he received, the developments he made in aviation and other areas, he became a pretty famous guy. Lindbergh Sr.'s wife was Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and she was also an aviator, as well as an Arthur. She was born and raised in the New Jersey and New York area and graduated from Smith College in Massachusetts in 1928. The following year, she married Charles, and in 1930, she became the first woman to receive a U.S. glider pilot license. In the 1930s, well, the early 1930s, that is, she served as her husband's co-pilot and radio operator, so she accompanied him on many exploratory flights and aerial surveys. Now, the couple's first child, Charles Jr., was born on Anne's 24th birthday, which was June 22, 1930. Well, fast forward 20 months after his first birth, or, or after his birth, sorry about that, to March 1st, 1932. Around 10 p.m., the baby's nurse went into the nursery to check on him, only to discover that he wasn't there. And he wasn't with his mom. That nurse, her name was Betty Gow. She ran and alerted the senior Lindbergh, who then went straight to the nursery. Once he was there, he found a ransom note in an envelope on a windowsill. The handwriting, as well as the grammar in the note, was very poor, but it demanded fifty thousand dollars and listed how they wanted the money broken down, like what bills, how many of this bill, how many of that bill, whatever. It also said that within the next four days, they would send another letter telling where to deliver the money. The writer of the note also said not to inform the public or the police or the baby would be harmed. Lindbergh armed himself with a gun and set out with the family's butler to check the house and the outside surrounding areas. On the ground underneath the window to the baby's room, they found a fresh set of footprints, pieces of a wooden ladder, and a baby blanket. Even though the note said not to contact the police, Lindbergh had his butler call the police while he contacted his attorney. And he also contacted the New Jersey State Police. Once the police were there, they discovered that one set of footprints led southeast to a ladder that is believed to have been used in the kidnapping. Then they conducted the very first search of, you know, the baby's nursery. The only fingerprints they found were on the envelope of the ransom note. But y'all, they were smudged. When professionals examined the note itself, they decided that, from the poor grammar and use of the English language, that the writer was a German immigrant. The ladder itself also provided a look into the type of person they were looking for because it was poorly constructed, but the person had some knowledge of building so they must have had some type of experience with construction. Further inspection of that ladder revealed no fingerprints. On the day following his kidnapping, J. Edgar Hoover, who was at that time the Attorney General and FBI Director, informed the Trenton Police Department that they could contact the FBI for any assistance on this case, but it wasn't until May 13th of that year that the President made it where the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey State Police and that the FBI should work with and actually conduct the investigation. The state police announced that they were putting up a $25,000 reward to anyone who could provide information on the case. Now, also during this time, a man by the name of Gaston B. Means told a woman by the name of Evelyn Walsh McLean that he could be a major component in finding the Lindbergh baby. Now, according to him, just weeks before the kidnapping, he was approached and asked about participating in a major kidnapping. And he went on to say that it was a friend of his that is the kidnapper. And then he convinced McLean to give him a hundred thousand dollars because he said the ransom had doubled, and he could get the child from the kidnappers. Well, McLean believed Means and handed him the money. And every day she waited for news of the child's return. But when she didn't, ha- you know, when that didn't happen, she finally asked Means for her money back, and he refused. Well, when he refused, McLean reported him to the police, and he ended up being sentenced to 15 years in prison for embezzlement. Now, what kind of dirty snake would pull something like that? And can you imagine just having the money like, to hand over 100000 just like that? Now, a lady by the name of Violet Sharp, she was also a housekeeper at the house, um, at the Lindbergh House, was believed to be involved in the kidnapping and had been questioned three times by the police. But just before being questioned a fourth time on June the 10th, she killed herself by ingesting silver polish that had cyanide in it. But get this, her involvement in the kidnapping was later ruled out because the authorities were able to confirm an alibi for her on the night that the baby was kidnapped. Now, I'm sure that she probably was feeling so pressured by the police. I mean, she knew that she hadn't had anything to do with it, right? But I guess, you know, all the pressure of the police, you know, constantly wanting to interview her was getting to her. So, so far out of this kidnapping, we already have the kidnapping itself. But then we have the embezzlement and a suicide stemming from it. Well, hang on because there's more twists and turns to this story. Five days after the baby went missing, a new ransom note was delivered, and it said that the ransom had been raised to $70,000. And then a third note was received by Henry Breckenridge, who was the Lindbergh's friend and attorney. These two notes were postmarked from Brooklyn, and all three notes had one thing in common. An odd mark at the bottom of the paper. The mark was two linked blue circles and at the point where the two circles linked was a smaller red circle. And inside the side of that red circle and on either side of the blue circles were holes. Now, these new notes also said that a, a man by the name of John Condon should be used as a go-between for the Lindberghs and the kidnappers, like, I guess, like the middleman. It also asked that a notice be placed in the newspapers that the third note had been received. It also gave instructions with a specific size of box that the money for the ransom should be placed in and again warned them not to contact the police. So, who is this John Condon guy? Well, he was a well-known person, and he was a retired school teacher in the Bronx area, and he had offered the kidnapper or kidnappers $1,000 if they would just turn the baby over to a priest. He also received a letter asking that he be the go-between, and Lindbergh believed that it was a true letter. Condon then placed an ad in the New York American that said, Money is ready, and he signed it Jaffsie. So that was spelled J A F S I E. You now, a meeting between him and someone supposedly representing the kidnappers was set up at a cemetery in the Bronx. Condon says that during the meeting, the man stayed in the cover of the shadows so as not to reveal his identity. And he went on to say that this man had a strong foreign accent. And the representative told Condon that his name was John, a Scandinavian sailor and part of a gang that consisted of three men and two women. He also said that the baby was fine and being held on a boat, but the only way he would be returned was by the ransom. Now, Condon doubted that story. So the stranger he offered to return with the baby sleeper on the 16th of March, Condon received that sleeper by mail in a seventh ransom note. The Lindberghs identified the sleeper as belonging to their son, so Condon placed another ad in the home news that said, Money is ready, no cops, no secret service. I come along like last time. Then on April 1st, Condon received a letter that said, it was time for the ransom to be delivered. You know, he delivered the ransom in a custom-made wooden box. And the reason for it being made, you know, custom-made was so that it could later be identified. Now, along with the money, gold certificates were included since those were about to cease to exist and it would draw attention to anybody cashing those in. Pretty smart thinking. The money in the box contained unmarked bills, but the serial numbers had been written down for later identification on april 2nd an unidentified taxi driver delivered another note to condon condon told the man that had earlier identified himself as john in that cemetery john not john condon that he had only been able to raise fifty thousand dollars and the man was fine with that and he told him that the baby was in the care of two women But as we all know, the baby wasn't returned to his parents. Sadly, on June the 12th, just three months after his nurse had discovered him missing from his nursery, his little body was found. A delivery truck driver named Orville Wilson and his assistant pulled over on the road, or on the side of the road, about four and a half miles from the Lindbergh's home. Alan went into the woods. Allen is actually the... Assistant, He went into the woods to urinate, and that's when he discovered the body, and it was a gruesome scene. The baby's skull was horribly fi- fractured. The body was grossly decomposed, and there was evidence of scavenger animals on the body. There was also evidence of a really poor effort to bury the body. The baby's nurse positively identified the ba- body by recognizing two overlapping toes on the baby's right foot and by a shirt that she had made. Now, Because of the state that the body was in, the Lindbergh, the Lindbergh family insisted that the child be cremated. Now, the next month, authorities began to believe that the crime had been carried out by someone the Lindberghs had known, someone close to them. And the John Condon fella that I spoke about earlier was questioned and his home searched, but nothing incriminating was found. But to the public, he was suspect number one. I mean, he does sound a little sketchy, right? And for the next two years, he would vow to the police that he would find that guy that he called Cemetery John. His, beav- his behavior after that became erratic. Once, while riding a city bus, he exclaimed that he saw this cemetery John person out on the street. Revealed his identity and demanded that the bus be stopped. The driver stopped the bus. Condon jumped off the bus, but the target of his chase managed to get away from him. He received further crit- further criticism when he agreed to star in a vaudeville act that dramatized the kidnapping this and poor taste but that's just my opinion now in the meantime the investigation had come to a halt because investigators had nothing to go on so then they decided to start tracking the money that had been used for the ransom they made a pamphlet with the serial numbers listed and distributed distributed it to new york area businesses some of the money showed up in random locations and even as far away as chicago and minneapolis but they were never traced to who was spending them. And what about those gold certificates? The president ordered that all gold certificates be exchanged for money by May 1st, 1933. And just a few days before the deadline, a man named J.J. J. Faulkner brought $2,980 worth of gold certificates into a Manhattan bank he gave the bank the address of 537 West 149th Street, but it turned out that no one by that name lived there. Now, a Jane Faulkner had lived there 20 years earlier, but she denied any involvement when she was questioned. Over the next two and a half years, ransom bills were tracked throughout New York City, and soon police were seeing a pattern of those bills <coughs> sorry, beans spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway. This line connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, and that included a German-Austrian neighborhood in Yorkville. In September of 1934, a bank teller came across a gold certificate that was included in the ransom in the margin on the gold certificate was a license plate number that had been jotted down and somehow it was traced to a nearby gas station and it turns out that the gas station manager had jotted the tag number on the certificate because the customer was acting sketchy and he thought it could possibly be a counterfeiter The license plate itself belonged on a sedan owned by Richard Hauptmann, who had a Bronx address. Hauptmann was an immigrant from Germany and had a criminal background. When Hauptmann was arrested, he had a single $20 gold certificate on him and more than $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. During questioning, Hoffman told police that a friend and former business partner named Isidore Feisch had left the money and other items with him while he went to Germany. Feisch died shortly Gosh, I can't talk tonight. I'm sorry, y'all. Feisch died shortly after returning from that trip to Germany on May 29, 1934. Now, it was only after Feisch's death that Hoffman learned of the contents of the shoebox was that large sum of money. So why didn't Hoffman turn it over to somebody? I mean, police, anybody, you know. Well, because he claimed that Fisch owed him from a business deal that the two had made. Hoffman insists that he had no knowledge of the kidnapping or that the money that connected him to the crime. One of those items was a notebook that had a sketch of a ladder very similar to the one that was found at the crime scene. On a closet wall, police found John Condon's telephone number and address, but the key piece of evidence was a piece of wood that was found in the attic. That piece of wood was determined by an expert to be the same wood that was used in the construction of that ladder. On September 24, 1934, Hoffman was indicted in the Bronx for extorting $50,000 from Charles Lindbergh, Sr. Then on October 8, he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Lindbergh, Jr. Two days later, he was extradited to New York to face charges that were directly related to the kidnapping and the murder of the baby. Hopman well, Hoffman was charged with capital murder, and his trial was held in Hunterdon County Courthouse in Flemington, New Jersey. It was called the trial of the century, and the newspaper reporters and every had every room of every hotel booked. You couldn't find a hotel room anywhere in the area. Now, Edward J. Riley was hired to represent Hoffman by the New York Daily Mirror in exchange for exclusive rights to publish Hoffman's story in their paper. The prosecution was led by David T. Willens, who was the Attorney General of New Jersey. Now, evidence that Willens presented against Hoffman included the money that was found in that garage and the fact that his handwriting and spelling were a very close match to those found in the ransom notes. As a matter of fact, eight handwriting experts pointed out the similarities between the notes and a sample of Hoffman's handwriting and the defense had handwriting experts also but two of them (coughs) sorry about that y'all Got choked on something. But anyway, the defense had handwriting experts, but two of them wouldn't testify unless they were paid $500 each so they were dismissed. (coughs) But there was one expert they put on the witness stand that denied there was any similarities in the handwriting. When all was said and done and the prosecution rested its case, The defense started their case with a long examination of Hoffman, and throughout that, he denied any guilt in the case. Hoffman's wife, Anna, was also called on by the defense. She told the court (coughs) that every day she would hang her apron up on this hook that was higher than the shelves, and she never recalled seeing a shoebox sitting there. Later, a rebuttal witness that was called by the prosecution said that Feisch could have never been at the scene of the crime and that he didn't even have the money to pay for his medical treatment for tuberculosis that he later died from. Now, In the end, Hoffman was found guilty and immediately sentenced to death. His lawyers did file appeals with the highest court that the state had at the time. And even the governor of the state visited him with a secretary that was fluent in German. When the governor left, he was convinced that this could not have been a one-person job and asked for a thorough and impartial investigation to be continued. But on March 30th, 1936, Hoffman's final appeal was denied and he was executed by electrocution on April 3rd. Just before being electrocuted, Hoffman turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and he also turned down a last minute offer to have his death sentence commuted to life in prison in exchange for a confession. I mean, this is such a side story with a very sad ending but what do y'all think do y'all think that Hoffman was truly guilty there's a few conspiracy theories out there about this case and I'm not really convinced myself that Hoffman was guilty now sure they found loads of evidence in his garage and you know but you know we know that evidence can be planted I mean we've talked about it on many episodes And the fact that Lindbergh was so ready to believe anything and everything that John Condon said, it just don't sit right with me for some reason. Condon sounded like a bit of a scheming individual. Some think that Lindbergh was guilty to some degree. But what would he actually gain by having his baby kidnapped and killed other than having his name lay in every newspaper again? Those are just some of the ideas that I've been tossing around in my head this week you know all right so i guess i've talked long enough to fill up your friday night how about checking out our youtube channel and hitting the subscribe button you can find the link in the episode description y'all come back in the morning for an all-new week in weird files have a good night